on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff. Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience a Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff is going to join us in just a moment here. Hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics Canada's favorite orthotics providers supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Let's go to the phone lines now. Joined as we are every week on this program from Daily Faceoff, Frank Saravalli here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. What up, Frank? How you doing? I'm good, boys. How are you? Uh, we're good. Do you remember, Frank, it was less than a month ago, roughly about a month ago, though, when you had your 32 bold predictions on Daily Faceoff? I and do remember that. Do you remember what your bold prediction was for the Vancouver Canucks? I do, because we talked about it, and yes. that was Bruce Boudreaux would be the first coach fired in the NHL this season. Now, the Canucks are dead last in the NHL. So my question isn't necessarily if Bruce Boudreaux is going to walk the plank here. I feel like it's an inevitability almost at this point. Are you getting the same feeling? I mean, I never want to say that any person losing their job is an inevitability, but I'd imagine at some point, the longer this continues on that no matter how much the Canucks don't want to make this change, which it seems like they've resisted the urge to this point, that you you can't make as many changes in season with your roster as you would like, and it's sometimes really the only card left that you can play. And I just I don't see the Canucks getting to a spot where they let you know they let themselves you know out of spite let the season swirl down the drain. I just I don't see it. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean when you get a game like last night and you spot the New Jersey Devils four goals to start and Bruce Boudreaux comes out and says that your team was outworked. Like, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to connect all those dots. But would anyone is anyone sitting here blaming Bruce Boudreaux for the state of the Canucks? It's hard to unpack because I'm not there every day, but I do think that when you hear Jim Rutherford say the things that he did, you know, even just going back to after hours and a few days before that feels like forever ago now. It was only like 10 days ago. <laughs> but he, he said that he wasn't surprised by this team's start to the season. Yeah. Like, how is that possible? And part of that, when you think of a team having a bad training camp and you think of a team that often looks unprepared and sloppy, part of that does come back to the coaching staff. It does. That's like the one thing that you can key in on as a coaching staff is, is being prepared, having strong practices, all of those things, that that's one area of the game you can control. You're not out there playing, and you're not the guy that assembled the roster and, and all those things, but there are certain things under a coach's purview that can be controlled. It just seems, uh, it just seems crazy that, that that's kind of their only option, but I don't disagree with you, but... It's funny. I, How many, I, I mean, we've talked about the Horvat option. Like you could make a That's one seismic trade you could make. Yeah. Yep. Other than that, you're talking about moving the deck chairs around. Well, and also it's really tough to make sizable trades mid season. Like the time to do it is in the off season. And, um, 
and but but it's funny what I was going to say was like I went to the game on Friday against Pittsburgh when they when they beat the Penguins and they played easily their best game of the season. The fans outside Rogers Arena were chanting Bruce there it is. Like they were chanting. You could ch- hear it on the broadcast in fact. Yeah, and and it, but it continued out onto a Friday night in Vancouver like, you know, the fans were they love Bruce Boudreaux. They do not care but for I much else on this, this team. Is, I think that's why there's been they've had such a hard time doing this. Like have a, having a hard time getting to the point where they pull the trigger. Yeah. First off, they don't want to let the players off the hook because you know, if you're being outworked, that's on the players. Um, and if, you know, you've got some other things going on where, you know, you feel like roster construction is an issue, that's on you as a management team. So they don't want to let the players off the hook. And two, he's an immensely popular figure among the fan base based on the work that he did last season coming in in December and helping the team turn things around. So I would bet there's a part of the fan base that's sitting there saying, well, he worked his magic last year. All of a sudden, is that just gone? The genie's out of the bottle and, and he's no longer a good coach? Like, I don't think anyone's suggesting for a second that Bruce Boudreaux isn't a good coach. It's just that is the, I think the larger question is, is he on the same page as the management team moving forward? Because here's the the big picture. If you get everyone wants to get an idea of like what's coming next, what's going to happen next. So they're running out of cards to play from a management side of things. Or really, just as an organization, I mean, go through the checklist of the struggling team checklist. They've already had the players only meeting. Uh, they've already had trades to bring guys in. They've already had the public vote of confidence for the head coach. They've already had the pre- president of hockey ops and general manager do the media availability. Like outside of a practice fight, they've gone through the list of everything they can do. I think the only real card left aside from a coaching change is making that big trade of significance or not even a trade of significance, just sending someone out the door because we've, we've pointed this out. The three deals, the old body on the tarmac pretty much because the three deals that they've made right now was bringing Stillman in, bringing Studnika in, bringing bear in. The kind of common refrain there is no significant piece, all due respect to Jason Dickinson, has gone the other way. They haven't really shaken it up in that regard. You know, Rutherford referred to it as pecking away at the roster. So I guess maybe they've got one or two pecks left. But uh, again, to reiterate, they're running out of cards to play here. It's almost like you guys have seen this story before. A couple times, once or twice. (laughs) But yeah, no, and we know how it goes, and that's it. You don't get to do business differently in the NHL. At the end of the day, everyone's doing the same gig and working under the same cap, and they don't have a lot of cards to play. Well, and that goes back to what I was saying. Like, I I don't think they want to make a coaching change, but at some point they're going to have to because it's either that or you're, you're looking at, you know, a trade of significance involving someone like Bo Horvat. Everyone knows the situation you're in. They can all see it coming from a million miles away. It hurts your value and what you get back in terms of proper asset management. So, you know, their best bet, even if they don't want to, is probably hanging on to Bo Horvat a bit longer, you know, if their preference would be to try and make a seismic trade. So, Frank, here's a question for you. Uh, Who's under the gun more, Bruce Boudreaux in Vancouver or Sheldon Keefe in Toronto? Now, that's a good question. Um, I would say, oh, man. I, I think it's Bruce Boudreaux because 
the one thing Sheldon Keefe has going that it makes this entire thing really difficult to quantify is he, he's got a really strong relationship with Kyle Dubas. Like they go back a long ways. I think they're as close as any GM coach combo in the league. And I think when you have that kind of backing, it, it kind of changes things a little bit. Um, and so is Sheldon Keefe on the hot seat? I think the answer to that is yes. And I think part of it is, in some ways, he's ratcheted up the temperature in his own market based on the comments that he's made. When you come out on opening night and say that, and then a couple of days later after a loss to the Coyotes and are critical of your team, which I thought was fine and fair and certainly not personal, to then walk those comments back and, and have that whole thing going on mm-hmm. and then come out yesterday and say, man, we're lucky to have 10 points, basically, in parentheses, that's how bad we played. So... To me, he, he's, you know, he's sort of allowed some of those things to, to happen and turn up the temperature. And, and when the coach does that, you're given permission, especially in talk radio and everywhere else, to, to make those points and, and offer that type of commentary because the coach is, is saying a lot of the same things that you and your fan base are seeing. So I, I do think the situations are a little bit different. And Part of the reason I went back and the other part of that paragraph in the bold prediction was not to say that Bruce Boudreaux and Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine are constantly at odds. Right. It's just that there was an entire game of chicken that happened over the summer with the Bruce Boudreaux option. Is he going to sign it? Is he not? He asked for an extension, didn't get one. Like that went on for a while where I, you know, I don't think everyone left that feeling all warm and fuzzy. Right. And, you know, with Keefe, there's an entirely different wrinkle from the Boudreaux situation, which is, of course, the Mitch Marner relationship. Now, where's your read? What's your take on exactly what's going on here? Because it's gotten to the point now where I can't say Marner. I have to specify whether I'm talking about Mitch Marner or Paul Marner. And that's his father, of course. And that's not a great thing, but it comes up more and more and more in conversation. It's another layer to this whole thing. I know from the outside looking in, it seems maybe dysfunctional at best, the relationship with Marner. I don't know if it goes deeper than that, but what's your read on what's going on specifically with Marner and the Leafs and Keefe? I, I, I don't know the answer because I, I haven't talked to either side about what that relationship is like, but it was a really interesting, and I called it an inflection point in Sunday's game in Anaheim, playing the 31st place team in the league, being in a spot where you're up three to one in the third period in a game that you already determined because you were Oh for California, that it was a quote character statement game. Like not to mention this team was 500 and playing in late October in California. I don't know how so much pressure got added to one game, but to see the interaction between Marner and Keith on the bench to see as much as he tried to maybe keep it a little bit subtle, the pointing that occurred and the you were directly responsible for two goals that went in the back of our net. Anyone watching could see that. Any NHL player would clearly know that. Followed by the benching and then what seemed like a pretty childish stick-smashing incident, Mm. you know, to then sort of put it all back together. The thing about that is, and, and this is this is why I called it an inflection point, is the Leafs have been through a bunch of disappointments already to this point. We all know them. We've talked about them. But do they want to let the players off the hook? Now, 
If not, the thing is, when you see a coach do something like that so publicly, in today's NHL, how often does a coach end up living to see the other side of it in six months? It just feels like it never ends well. No, it, it's a good point to bring out because you could you could make the argument that uh, anytime in the last couple of weeks that Keefe's tried to do something demonstrative, he has to quickly walk it back. Like there were the public statements, which he walked back and then walked back the walk back. And then you mentioned the benching of Marner. So many people's takeaway from that was it only lasted one shift and then Marner was right back out there. So there's a dynamic at play. I don't know whether it's because of job security or lack thereof or Keefe's standing or lack thereof or the fact that Barry Trotz has already publicly stated that he'd like to go coach an original six team, but it seems like a very dicey dynamic there where Keith maybe wants to show that he's got authority or maybe more than he has, but at times... And that's why I had such a hard yeah. time answering your question. Well, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a complex situation for sure because you, you have to look at the outside as well and say, hey, we've got a ready-made, experienced veteran bench boss out there that could come in and maybe do the things that Keith can and make guys accountable. That also adds another layer to this whole thing as well. One, well, the expectations are way different between the Canucks and Leafs, right? Yep. Like the Leafs are supposed to be a, a, a bona fide Stanley cup contender. The Canucks are trying to get into the playoffs. It's just a totally different realm of what we're talking about. We're speaking to Frank Saravalli from daily face off here on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, I want to circle back to the Canucks and Devils, but from the Devils side of things, because one thing we didn't mention, we mentioned it off the air, but haven't mentioned it on the show, is that the Devils look really good. They looked really good last night. Bruff said they look pretty legit in terms of their talent and speed and ability. I know you had a chance to chat with the general manager, Tom Fitzgerald, recently. What were some of the takeaways from that with this team that got off to kind of a slow start and is now one of the hottest teams in the NHL? I believe they're up to third in the overall league standings. Yeah, a rocky first couple games, and part of it was due to goaltending. They couldn't get a save, but their numbers were outstanding, you know, in terms of indicating their five-on-five success. And what Tom Fitzgerald noticed has been a culture change. And, you know, it's interesting when you have a player like Miles Wood come out after, like, literally opening night, game one of the season, and say that game two is a must-win, and then they lost. Sometimes those things can spiral out of control in the wrong direction. But he really liked what Miles Wood said because it it drew a line in the sand. It said, we're not going to stand for average. We're not going to tolerate average or mediocre play. We're going to be a playoff team. We want to be a playoff team. Let's go out and do it. And so between that and then the continued steps forward that we've seen from some of their young players – you know, whether it's Hughes and you saw him last night or Jesper Bratt increasing his uh, points scoring streak to start the season or Nico Heischer who opens the scoring on the power play. All those different facets of their team, um, those are the obvious ones, the Bratt and the Hughes and, and, and Heischer components. But what isn't maybe quite as noticed is how efficiently that team moves the puck out of their own end. Their defense is mobile, they're big, um, and they, they do it kind of with ease. Dougie yep. Hamilton's really good at it. Severson is probably underrated. Um, and then you have someone like a Marino come in who has a high o- hockey IQ, and all of a sudden your team is vastly improved. The big thing for them moving forward is still going to be goaltending. And 
The thing is, if you took their same team last year and gave them just league average goaltending, they probably were a playoff team. Now, you know, that's sort of what they're hoping for as their team's even better. Even just under league save for, league average save percentage probably gets them in the playoffs. So that's their focus is, is how can they, you know, manage their netminders between Blackwood and Vanacek to get the most out of their team. But it's hard not to like some of the pieces that they have as they're building for the future. Well, you know what's crazy? You mentioned how good their defense looks right now. They got two blue chip prospects on the way too in Luke mm-hmm. Hughes and Simone Nemich. So things are looking good for the New Jersey Devils. Hey, I noticed on Daily Faceoff you did uh, your early Canada roster for the 2024 World Cup, and I immediately scrolled down to the goalie section and I noticed your colleague, Matt Larkin, has he not noticed how well Carter Hart has played for the Philadelphia Flyers? Because he didn't have him on the team. You have. Um, I don't know if the Flyers are for real. Actually, I'm pretty sure they're not. But Carter Hart is 5-0-2. Uh, he somehow lost last night's game at Madison Square Garden despite not giving up a goal during regulation. Uh, the Rangers won that one nothing in overtime. He's got a 9.43 save percentage. In terms of Hockey Canada and the World Cup, like this is the best news for Canada. Well, yeah, a position where that's the one that they're sort of lacking depth and strength in, right? Between Jari, Hart, and then the guy I threw in there as my third guy was Stuart Skinner. Part of this is projection, 16 months out, right? Like who's going to be in that spot? Who's really going to take control between now and then? That's the hard part of the exercise, but... It's hard to argue with Carter Hart, not just that, but he also has some pedigree on the world stage, having twice played in the world juniors. Like, so he, he's represented team Canada previously off to a great start. And, you know, Jari's been really good too. And he's probably been really good for the last 18 months himself. Um, I, you know, again, part of the projection thing, like where does someone like Mark Andre Fleury, what does he look like 16 months from now? It seems like his game is sort of rounding back into form with the Wild right now. But Hart has been nothing short of fantastic, and I would think that his game only continues to grow. You know, uh, one guy that may not be in the mix for Canada internationally is Jordan Bennington, a guy that I think a lot of people did think would be in that conversation, but he's really hit the skids in St. Louis, although in his defense, a lot of the guys have. And I, I, I'm paying attention to this one, too, for a variety of reasons. One, I thought the comments from Barube after their most recent loss and then uh, Doug Armstrong the following day, they raised some flags where like that could be a team that's on the verge of moving some things in and some things out. I also looked at Ryan O'Reilly this year. I could not believe how yeah. poorly he's played. He's got one goal, one point. That's it. One point in his first eight games. He's somewhere in the neighborhood of minus 11, which is crazy for a guy that's known as a sound, robust two-way forward. I think the crazy thing and the most important thing about all of this is that he's going into the last year of his deal. He's a pending unrestricted free agent. So I feel like St. Louis is 100% a team to watch because there's a lot of different things at play that could signal maybe, maybe a shakeup. Yeah, I mean, maybe they got to get to that point. Like, I do think the Bennington thing is a huge part of it. And Doug Armstrong, as you mentioned, was really quick to defend his goaltender yesterday in his comments saying like how many of these goals that were scored were backdoor tap-ins that are more the defense's fault than, than the goaltender himself. But the fact of the matter is Bennington's numbers, he's really struggled. Um, he had a really solid first three games of the season. 
And going back to last year, like there's a reason Billy Huso played as much as he did. He basically carried that team for a significant stretch of the season. They were going to be exposed this year with Huso moving on. They bring in Thomas Grice, who, you know, is again a bit older and, and certainly not going to be grabbing the bulk of your stars or at least shouldn't be. And so then you add in the O'Reilly factor that you talked about. And, you know, not everyone handles a contract year great. Not everyone goes out and knocks it out of the park with a double-decker Grand Slam home run like Johnny Gaudreau did. It's, it weighs on everyone differently, and I'm not saying that's absolutely the case with O'Reilly, but it certainly feels like with his start, given his you know, skill set, at varying points, like he's looked really good, like the game in which the Blues shut down the Oilers and limited Connor McDavid to nothing. Um, he looked great then, but otherwise he's really struggled and the whole team has. So what happens? I don't know. It's interesting because as Braden Shen said a couple days ago, he's never really been through this in St. Louis. This team has generally been pretty good and pretty consistent for a long time. Frank, this was great, bud. Thanks a lot for doing this. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the week. We'll do this again uh, next Wednesday. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thanks. That's Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Um, so we've kind of touched on a few of the other teams that are going through it in a really negative way right now. Uh, we talked about the St. Louis Blues. We talked about the Toronto Maple Leafs. Obviously talked at length about the Vancouver Canucks. Um, there were some, you know, what? maybe we are the house of negativity a lot. I just wanted to say house of positivity. And this is going to be unfortunate for a lot of you listeners because it's house of positivity for the Boston Bruins. But I admire the hell out of that group. Oh, yeah. You I admire to. the hell out of, that, out of what they've done over the last decade. For all the things that they've accomplished, they are now off to, and this is an original six team. This has got a lot of storied history. They're off to the greatest start in franchise history right now. Mm-hmm. They are playing fantastic hockey. They are doing this without their number one defenseman in Charlie McAvoy. And in large part, they've done it without Brad Marchand, who only recently returned to the lineup. They just have... And again, it's a lot of buzzwords and cliches, but they have a standard, they have a culture, and they have guys that set the bar and lead, and everyone else knows what's expected of them. Remember when we talked to Curtis Lazar? Yeah. And he talked about what he learned playing in Boston specifically, learning under Bergeron? And he, it was just like, go. Curtis mm-hmm. Lazar is now going to talk glowingly about his experience in Boston. It is, it's hard to do, and you need super elite players to do it, but... You see in Boston, but you need elite players who are also leaders. Yeah, but you've right? seen you've seen it now over the better part of go. Okay, just go from 2011 when they beat the Canucks in the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, that that happened. To now, you got an 11 year window. Could you have more shocking trajectories of two franchises? And part of the problem was, well, not part of them. The entire problem was that the Canucks were led by the Sedins, who were older than Bergeron and Marchand. They got old. Mm-hmm. And then they weren't, they have not been adequately, adequately replaced in terms of their leadership and the culture that was set in the organization. Correct. Plus a bunch of other things. Like that's not the only thing. But I want to read a text from Duke and Campbell River. Yep. As a Devils fan living on Vancouver Island, the Canucks have always been my second team. Watching that game last night lays out the reasons why sometimes you got to rebuild. Detroit, Buffalo, Jersey, and now Anaheim have all rebuilt and look at the success so far. Management says it takes a long time to rebuild, but I think the fans would be happy 
to see a product like they saw last night in the Devils, even if it meant some pain for a while. Tear it down. Not only are the New Jersey Devils, that was the end of this. This isn't Duke anymore. <laughs> this is Jason texting into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Jason talking now. Not only do the Devils look good right now, because they've gone through this rebuilding process, there are still players to come. Like, I, I mentioned it with Frank. How good that blue line looks right now. They've got two blue chip prospects coming mm-hmm. in Nemich and Luke Hughes. So they won't have to. Let's say that, you know, it, I, I think Severson, for example, is uh, a free agent at some, some sometime soon. Like they won't have to be in this situation of going, ah, we're desperate to keep this guy, right? Like we, we have to, we have to overspend to keep this guy. Cause they're like, yeah, we got guys coming. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You know, it's the same thing in Colorado on the defense, right? They, they might be able to trade a guy like Gerard if they need to, because Bowen Byram looks like he's going to take that next step now. Yep. I mean, we, and we've talked about this to death is that you always need a replenishment of good young talented guys on entry level deals, which Mm -hmm. is why drafting and developing. I mean, everyone knows this right now, but what we're talking about as it pertains to the Canucks is now they're in this, this quagmire, I would call it that, They've made commitments, yeah. financial and otherwise, to so many guys, and it's way more difficult to untangle. You know, just to put a bow on this one, the Devils basically needed to rebuild from when they acquired Taylor Hall, he won MVP, they got into the playoffs, and then they quickly realized that they didn't have it. That they had a good player, but they didn't have the, the right team. Uh, Corey Schneider was on the, the decline, and it just looked like they needed to start fresh. So they tore it down, they missed the playoffs for four years, and now... It looks like a team that's ready to make another challenge to get into the postseason and beyond. Four years. Now, people say that's a long time, to which I would say, yeah, but we've gone through like 11 of this in Vancouver, right? Where yeah. it's just been, uh, is this the group? Can we believe? And I think that question for a lot of people is either undecided or just a flat out no. Uh, we got to go to break. When we c- we'll come back, we are going to jump in the NBA and we're going to do this with some enthusiasm and some curiosity. And we have to focus on this, not just because it's Steve Nash, the greatest Canadian basketball player ever, but it's a situation in Brooklyn that has really gone beyond the NBA. It's gone beyond sports in light of what Kyrie Irving has done at the podium and online over the last little bit. The first straw, I suppose, that broke the camel's back. And then Steve Nash got fired yesterday. And I wonder what's going to happen next and what the ramifications are. And if Steve Nash, quite frankly, is happy to be out of it. Uh, We've got a lot more to get to with regards to that conversation with Alex Schiffer. He is the Nets beat writer for The Athletic. We will talk to him next on a big day, a big story, and a big development in the National Basketball Association. That's coming up next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. If you're going through Langley, there's a power outage. Seven thirty-four on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody! Halford Bruff Sportsnet six fifty. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, hour two of this program, which we are in the midst of, is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling, Vancouver's premier metal recycler. 
pays the highest prices for scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Um, I think it's safe to say that Steve Nash's playing career will far supersede his coaching career. I'm not sure he ever coaches basketball again after this. If this was my first foray into coaching, I'd be like, nope, not for me. Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, Steve Nash was fired yesterday as the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets after a couple tumultuous, to put it lightly, seasons at the helm of the NBA's most dysfunctional franchise. Joining us now for more on the dismissal, uh, Brooklyn Nets beat writer for The Athletic, Alex Schiffer here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Alex. How are you? What's going on? Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you taking the time to do this. So the, the first question I have is, was this dismissal justified because maybe Steve Nash didn't have the coaching experience or chops to deal with this team? Or was this just an inevitability because no coach, no matter how good or how experienced, could deal with this team? Uh, it's a great question. I think it, it depends upon how you slice it. I, I definitely think he never really got a full window to show what he could do because of all the injuries and waves arm and everything crazy stuff that happened in his time in this tenure um at the same time time never stops and the Nets title window was rapidly closing you know it, you could tell um it, it was interesting you know all the players were essentially saying how wild of a hand he had yet um clearly his voice was kind of waning with the team so I I don't and, and on top of all that I don't necessarily think a new head coach is going to fix all of this so I, I think that he he got a tough hand and he did the best with it. And at the same time, a, a change was needed. The Nets don't have a lot of moves to make, and this was one of them. Alex, can you just recap how the off season went? Because it looked for a time that the Nets players might might force Steve Nash out of this job before he even started the season. Yeah, you know, I, I lot to recap, but I mean, obviously, Kyrie Irving was. Sidelined the first half of last season, came back as a part-time player, got full-time clearance in March when New York City lifted his back, the vaccine mandate, and he was obviously unvaccinated. Swept out of the playoffs in the first round. Uh, Kevin Durant said Steve's been dealt a wild hand. Late June, Kevin Durant asked for a trade. Kyrie Irving uh, not getting a long-term deal from the Nets. Opting his player option after seeking a sign-in trade, realizing nobody wants him. In August, Kevin Durant calls for Steve Nash and Sean Marks to be fired. Uh, total standstill. Then eventually Kevin Durant rescinds that. We get into uh, the regular season, and now today here we are. And, oh, by the way, during all that, Ben Simmons uh, had back surgery. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ben Simmons. Someone pointed out that it's amazing that Kevin Durant might be only the third weirdest guy on the team. And I was like, yeah, that's a fair <laughs> assessment. It's wild. Um, you know, it's it's such a strange situation, and there's dysfunction, and there's controversy. I got to ask you, Alex, is there any real belief at any level of the organization that this title window is actually still open? I, I think... I think so, but it's rap. You know, to me, if they don't make a lot of noise this year, it's really hard to uh, to see it going beyond this year. And I think that's why you're kind of seeing the, the Nets are doing everything they can to win right now. Everything, you know, more morale, ethics aside, right? I mean, so and again, you look at their history. Having grown up here, I mean, this is the team that 
Um, submitted too low of a bid to get Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1969. Lost Dr. J to the ABA-NBA merger. Um, passed on drafting Kobe. You know, we'll be here all day. So, I mean, they've only had so many shots in their history to really win the whole thing, and, and this might be their last one. So I, I, I think plenty of people, myself included, are very skeptical that this is going to result in a deep playoff run or, or work long term. But I, I think they're just trying to exhaust every possible option to capitalize on this window, given they haven't really been able to do that so far. Now, I, I do appreciate the Nets' strategy of trying to have as many controversies as possible so that maybe one will deflect from the other and we all don't know which one to cover. So of all the coaches that they could possibly replace Steve Nash with, it sounds as though it's going to be uh, Ime Odoka, who, of course, was the former Nets assistant who left for Boston, who then got suspended for an entire season because of uh, a consensual relationship that was inappropriate within the workplace and went against the organizational code of conduct. There's a lot to unpack there. What was your reaction when you heard that Udoka might be the favorite to replace Steve Nash for the Nets? I was shell-shocked. I mean, the, the two biggest stories of the NBA this summer were Kevin Durant and Ime Udoka's suspension, and now those two things are on a collision course. <laughs> it's amazing. And it, it's crazy to me. You know, a lot of the reaction I got talking to people, you know, internally and, and around the league were, I'm just stunned it's Udoka. And you look at the other coaching free agents out there. I mean, Quinn Snyder, great offensive and defensive coach, has some chops. Um, Mark Jackson, Brooklyn Zone, went to high school right by Barclay Center where the Nets play. They had other external options that would have been pretty good. From a coaching perspective, I think Ime fits a lot of the bill you want. I mean, he knows the organization. As you said, he coached under Nash, knows the roster, defensive guy. But the fact that they're doing this is just ridiculous. <laughs> and, and the fact that they want to take on these headlines, you know, we haven't even talked about Kyrie Irving and the anti-Semitic stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a large Jewish population in Brooklyn that is season ticket holders. They're very upset about that handling. And now, obviously, there, there's a lot of women and men, too, just about hiring Amy Udoka, given, as you said, the workplace relationship that got us suspended and how that all went down. So it, it, a lot of fans are and, – and, oh, they – raised season ticket prices this year, too, the summer that you didn't know if Kevin Durant was going to play. So, um, you guys like Billy Joel up there? Yes. It's like we didn't start the fire. <laughs> We're speaking to Alex Schiffer. He's the Brooklyn Nets beat writer for The Athletic here on the Halford and Brough Show on Sportsnet 650. God, there's so much to unpack here. We ha- and you brought up a great point. We're this far into the conversation, and we haven't even brought up Kyrie Irving yet. We're going to do that now. I'm going to give you a very open-ended question so you can take this in whatever direction you want, but what's it been like trying to cover the Kyrie Irving story? Because there's Kyrie Irving, the basketball player. There's Kyrie Irving, for lack of a better term, I'll say Kyrie Irving, the disruptor. And you have to balance between what he does on the court, what he does off the court, and the impact that he has in both avenues and venues. And I would think it's a very difficult job, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on what it's been like to cover Kyrie Irving. Yeah, you know, because he's been in and out a little bit of the lineup the past few years, it hasn't been – I feel like Saturday is really when it hit hard. I mean, that press conference was so wild. I feel like I'll be telling my kids one day, oh, yeah, your dad was in the room for that. Um, but uh, before then, it hadn't been – I feel like it had kind of come in increments because, you know, again, you got to factor in with the pandemic um, – 
Zoom and lack of open locker rooms. You know, you were only talking to him so much in person and whatnot, um, antics aside. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know where it goes from here. You know, there, there's the quote of a buddy of mine who's in the, the press corps with the Nets. Every Like, there's just something else just always comes up with him. You know what I mean? And it, it's hard to see the Nets taking this on beyond this season, given everything that's transpired and, and – Again, maybe maybe I shouldn't say that because again the, the Nets keep showing that they're comfortable uh, being uncomfortable with some of the stuff they've taken on, like the email stuff. But uh, it, it's just been one thing after another his whole time here. And when he's been on the court, he's been brilliant playing wise. But again, it hasn't led to the big the big picture results. And at some point, you got to wonder if it if it ever will, given given how this has gone. Alex, uh, it's interesting times in Brooklyn, to put it mildly. Uh, one, we want to thank you for doing this today. We really appreciate it. And two, I truly mean this. I want to wish you the best of luck moving forward with covering this team because I got a feeling that there's going to be more and more controversies to come. Thanks for doing this, man. No problem. I woke up to a text from a friend who's a scout, and as he said, a buddy just texted me, I can't imagine covering the Nets right now. And he replied, I know a guy. He's still with us as I speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Good luck, bud. See you, man. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thanks Thanks, for coming on. We appreciate it. That's Alex Schiffer, Brooklyn Nets beat writer uh, for The Athletic in New York and The Athletic NBA's vertical as well. Uh, There's a lot to unpack here. So if you're getting up to speed with the story just kind of right now and you're not exactly 100% sure what's going on, uh, Kyrie Irving has received a ton of scrutiny and questioning about a tweet that he put out promoting a film that is available on Amazon's platform that has a number of anti-Semitic tropes within it. Uh, Kyrie was then asked to explain why he would amplify that particular film along with, um, I believe there was a a clip from an old Alex Jones show uh, that he put out on his social media platforms. Do we have the audio here? Let's play this whole press conference because I have a few things to say about it. This is what Alex was just talking about, that he's going to tell his kids one day that he was in attendance for the now infamous Kyrie Irving press and media availability. We will play it now. Laddie, take it away. Kyrie, while we're on the topic of promotion, why did you decide to promote something that Alex Jones said? That was a few weeks ago. I do not stand with Alex Jones' position, narrative, court case that he had with Sandy Hook or any of the kids that felt like they had to relive trauma or parents that had to relive trauma or to be dismissive to all the lives that were lost during that uh, tragic event. My, my post was a post from Alex Jones that he did in the early 90s or late 90s about secret societies in America of occults. And it's true. So I wasn't identifying with anything of being a campaigning, a campaignist for Alex Jones or anything. I was just there to post. And it's funny, and it's actually hilarious, because out of all the things I posted that day, that was the one post that everyone chose to, chose to see. It just goes back to the way our world is and works. I'm not here to complain about it. I just exist. And to follow up on the promotion of the movie and the book. Can you please stop calling it a promotion? What am I promoting? Put it out on your platform. But I'm promoting it? Do you see me doing, do you see By me in front of the, it out there, the people title? People are going to say that you are yeah, promoting. Yeah, I put it out there just like you put things out there, right? 
Yeah, but I, okay. I, it's not you put stuff. things out there for a living, right? Right, but my Great. stuff is Great. not so let's move on. filled let's with anti-Semitic Let's stuff. move on. Don't dehumanize me up here. I, I'm, not, I'm not doing I'm that. You're free being. to post I can what, post whatever I want, so say that what, and shut it down and move on to the next question. But Kyrie, you have to understand that by I don't have post, to understand anything from you. But, but it's not me. Nothing. By it's no people that you're making you up, bro. Move on. But by posting move what on. you Next question. Anybody Do you guys have any more questions? And they're going to say, "You guys have any more questions?" Because this is going to be a clip. Beliefs. This is going to be a clip that he's going to marvel at. Is this any more questions? But you're not answering the question. Oh, this is another answering your question. Oh my God! Let's make another Instagram clip so we could be famous again. Next question. A lot to unpack there. Uh, Kyrie is just the worst. Honestly, his I I don't when I listen to that and when I watch the clip of it, that is definitely like yelling at your laptop or yelling at the TV, yelling at the radio type of stuff. Um, let's start with his stance that he didn't quote unquote promote that video, whatever you think of that video. And hopefully you think it's garbage because it's garbage, but whatever you think of that video, it was just classic Kyrie. Like, let me ask you a question, Halford. Do you typically share things you don't endorse with no written explanation because yeah. that's all it was. It was, it was just, he put it on here. There was no written explanation. There, there was nothing like, uh, this is a great video, but there was also like, this is terrible. And I can't believe that Amazon has this on his site. It was just shared for, so he goes, what am I promoting? The thing you shared with no explanation on it. And then he goes, I put it out there. Just like you put things out there, somehow equating randomly sharing something on his social media feed that has millions of followers with what a working journalist does. Yep. And then he's like, let's move on. Mm-hmm. That's what really frustrates me. Like that reporter was trying to have a conversation with Kyrie and Kyrie had no interest in having a conversation. Like Kyrie seems to have lots of opinions. Can we agree on that? He has lots of opinions. He seems to like learning new things. So why not be willing to discuss these things? Look, I, I, I get the, it's, it's amazing to me how much support Kyrie gets. And I, I don't I really get it. Maybe I do. It's because people really, there's a large segment that really does not care for the media just in general. And he's right in that Kyrie, I mean, it's not illegal to share things on social media without any explanation. It's not illegal. But when you have millions of followers and a public profile like Kyrie does, you might get questioned about the things you share. So maybe don't act all indignant when you do get asked about those things. I mean, you thought the earth was flat, Kyrie. And one of the quotes you had one of the quotes you had when you apologized for putting science teachers into a tough position with that one was that, hey man, I was just kind of into conspiracy theories and I loved hearing people debate that. And that was a, kind of harmless, right? Like mm-hmm. you loved t- hearing people debate that. Well, then let's have a debate about this. Let's have a debate about this things, these things that you're putting out there. Because if... You know, it, when it comes to ideas, they should be openly debated. And for him to just shut it down and just be like, I'm just putting it out there, period. 
Yeah. Well, like, what the hell is that? It's not. That's what Kyrie Irving is. Kyrie Irving is an example of the modern disruptor, the modern contrarian. The, the, that's what modern curiosity is now considered. That uh, you exist in a world where you see something and it interests you, and it maybe piques your curiosity. You do no real research, and you have no real debate. The reason he wanted to move on is because he had nothing to say. Kyrie Irving, uh, Howard Bryant, who's one of the better writers at ESPN right now, maybe one of the best, uh, he had a quote quote one time. He said that a prominent NBA -er texted him. It's the most perfect encapsulation ever. He said, Kyrie Irving is a contrarian without a cause. That it's not any one particular, like we had Alex Schiffer just on, he's like, Kyrie jumps around a lot. He's not interested in any one particular thing. He doesn't have a cause. He's a contrarian looking for one. And it, it'll be, and I guarantee you this, it'll be something else in a couple weeks time. And you'll be having the exact same frustrations that the, the defense and the response is all going to be the same. Yeah. There's probably, as you po- very astutely pointed out, there's probably a real conversation to be had in all of this. But right now, you've got maybe the worst messenger on the planet up there. And you've got a media core that, for better or for worse, is constrained by what they can do and how they can address this. Because this has gone beyond reporters trying to ask them, because what's the response? Just, I don't need to explain anything to you, bro. Now, this brings up another really interesting conversation. Does the NBA need to step in? Well, legally speaking, he he doesn't need to explain anything. But... The NBA and the New Jersey Nets can also say, hey, this isn't good for business. And they haven't yet. Kyrie Irving's still on the court. Kyrie Irving's still playing. All I'm saying is make of that what you will. Charles Barkley came out on TNT, I believe it was last night, and said that he thought that Adam Silver should have fined or suspended him. But he hasn't, and I don't think he's going to. And that is an entirely separate conversation, and I'm not really sure where it goes, to be perfectly honest, because on this one... We talk about, like, when we're trying to see the future for the Canucks. Like, yeah. maybe there'll be a trade. Maybe there'll be a coaching. This one is so much murkier because we are we are in a, an uncharted territory here. Whatever you'll say about Kyrie Irving, good, bad, or otherwise, um, it's very difficult to cover him as an athlete, as an individual, as an activist, if that's what he wants to be. It's or hard is to this- pin him down on anything because he won't discuss those things. He just... He, he gets so like you could you could hear in uh, the reporter's voice he was like flabbergasted because there are so many things that were being sent back to him that he was just like what mm-hmm. and we got a bunch of texts on this when yeah, you no, listen to fine. when you listen to Kyrie talk it's amazing that a lot of people think he's a sage he's simply a dumbass without thought further it's unreal that the NBA allows this clown to continue. He's not a disruptor. He's a clown. Surrey Ryan, I don't care who you are. If you have an opinion, then always be prepared to defend your position. It's not an attack. It's a conversation. It's called being an adult. Okay, and there's a lot of people uh, pointing out, rightly so, um, that he this is he's free to put out whatever he wants. And I'll say this, there's a larger conversation to be had about the fact that uh, what he was promoting was readily available for anyone to watch on Amazon, right? Uh, that's, that's part of the conversation. 
William Havitt. I st- I have steadfastly disagree with everything that he's done up to this point, and I don't I don't want to go down the road of being insulting and calling him a faux intellectual or whatever. But well, I will. But I will say, uh, I think that contrarian without a cause is perfect and justifiable, and will explain not what he's already done, but what he's going to continue to do. Mm-hmm. It'll be. I'm telling you right now. It'll be something else. I don't know what that something else is, but there will be something else. Yeah. There'll be another cause or message or documentary that he attaches himself to because he heard it and he thought it was interesting. Because he thinks everyone is wrong but him. Right. Um, we're up against it for time. I did want to get into the Steve Nash side of this, but we'll have to park that for now. Uh, Cole's Notes version, the question I asked off the top to uh, Alex is the one that I still have. To this day, I still don't know if Nash was too inexperienced a head coach to deal with this situation or if this situation was impossible for anyone to deal with. Because I'll say this, they went into the playoffs last year and they had everyone that they needed to have to make a run and they got swacked by Boston. And Steve took a lot of heat because of the adjustments or lack thereof or the way that they played. And I, I, you know, the crazy part is I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think we'll ever truly know because I don't think he's going to get back into coaching. If that was my first coach job, I'd be like, nope, not for me. You know, I'm good. I'm going to do a bunch of other things. I'll watch Tottenham play for the rest of my life and be happy with that. Uh, <laughs> they had a good game the other day. They did. They're, they made it through to the round of 16 in the Champions League. Uh, on the other side, we're going to talk to Dan Murphy of Sportsnet, get back into the Canucks talk. On your home of the Canucks, you're listening to Sportsnet 650.